Hey, Undark listeners, it's our last episode of the year. We're going to hear from our Undark editors about their favorite stories of 2018, and then we're going to hear an interview with John Holdren, the science advisor during the Obama administration. But first, I want to talk about one of my favorite stories from the last few months. It's a hairy little ogre of an organism that is reshaping the way scientists think about our microbial evolution, where we came from on a microscopic level. Now, to explain how big this discovery is, we should take a short trip back to high school biology class. One concept that scientists use to think about how different kinds of life are related to each other is called the tree of life. The root of the tree is the very first life form that existed, and all organisms, living and extinct, branch off from that. Organisms are also grouped and named at different levels, so a dog is part of the canid family, along with wolves, which are kind of mammal, which is a kind of animal, and so on. Well, recently, a research group is disrupting the way scientists have been drawing that tree and discovered a totally new species, a hairy, single-celled organism. The furthest back split on the tree of life is between archaea, bacteria, and eukaryotes. In this story, we're going to focus on eukaryotes, things like plants, fungi, animals, including us, and also a grouping called protists. Protists are kind of like the junk drawer of eukaryotes. It's a group with everything from tiny single-celled organisms to kelp. But now I say junk drawer with affection because these organisms are fascinating and absolutely everywhere. And that's where all the cool ones are. (laughs) That's Yana Eglet, a graduate student at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia, Canada. Her research focuses on discovering new types of eukaryotes and seeing where they fit on the tree of life. And the... Two ways to do this are either to search for organisms that have never been seen before, or unknown unknowns, if you will, or organisms that were previously described but never placed in the tree of life or their shape is just so strange that it is completely unclear where they go. Eglet and her colleagues found a member of the latter, the group where scientists knew they existed but never learned enough about them to understand their place in the evolutionary tree of life. In the spring of 2016, Eglint went on the Bluff Wilderness Trail outside of Halifax in Canada. Because, well, you never know when you might run into a new protist species, she often carries around empty vials, and decided to collect some soil samples from the side of the trail. Usually we'll have some vials lying around in our bags when we go traveling or hiking or whatever. Um, And... We know so little about microbial diversity to this date that you don't even need to go to a crazy exotic environment to find new things. When she took a closer look back at her lab, it just so happened that that soil sample she had randomly collected contained a rarely seen protist. The first organism that I observed in the dish was the spironema-like cell. It is very small and skinny, and I've only seen them one other time. Then, when she went back to look for more spironema in the same dish, Eglet noticed something even more extraordinary. Now, the other organism that was actually very abundant in the dish, it looked superficially like a large group of hairy-looking multi-flagellated organisms called ciliates. But the way they were moving, and there's something about their shape that didn't quite match an actual ciliates. Instead, they reminded her of an organism called hemimastix, a rarely seen protist that hasn't been reported in more than 30 years. 
Eglet was skeptical that she would find two really rare species of protus in one dish. I'm just trying to convince myself that it's a ciliate because it just seemed very unlikely that it could be this long lost organism that has been seen in 30 years in the same dish as the spironema. And I actually called my supervisor, Alistair Simpson, over to like look at it and just tell me it's a ciliate so I can move on and focus on the spironema, which was already very exciting, by the way. Um, and he looks at it in silence for about 10, 15 minutes and then tells me he can't tell me it's a ciliate. At that point, it was kind of exhilarating. Any kind of hemimastics hadn't been seen in 30 years, but this specific species was completely new. And according to the researchers, it's a bit of an ogre. It hunts by shooting these little harpoons at its prey, then it snares in its lunch with its hairs and sucks out the insides of its prey. I'm quite happy that we are not microbially sized, because our world would be even more frightening at that scale. Eglet and her team named the species Hemimastix kukulvestric after the mythological ogre of the Mi'kmaq people of Nova Scotia, who were the original inhabitants of the land where she found the microbe. The ogre is a hairy, predatory creature in the woods, and we thought that our microscopic, hairy, predatory creature of the woods, they shared something in common. And they're both kind of invisibly there, you know, one in the lore of the land and the other is too small to see by eye. These two species Eglet found in her dish, the Spironema and the Hemimastix cucuvestric, fall under a larger group called Hemimastigophora, which have been known since the 19th century, but have been puzzling for microbiologists. They've never been able to do a genetic analysis on these microbes because the organisms were difficult to cultivate in large enough quantities. And back then, the technology wasn't quite advanced enough to sequence small quantities. But now, today, with the new technique, the team was able to look at a large number of genes from a single cell. Eglet and her colleagues looked at the Hemimastix cucuvestric, when they learned more about this organism's genetic makeup, they found out that it was actually different from any eukaryote they had known before. In fact, this larger Hemimastigophora group was so genetically distinct from other eukaryotes that it needed its own branch on the tree of life. To show you how different, let's go back to biology class again. That big eukaryote umbrella is broken into categories that get more and more specific until we get to the label species. The first division is into about a half a dozen or so supergroups. Yes, supergroup is the technical biology term. Eglet was seeing if Hemimastigophora fits into an existing supergroup, but the genetic data just didn't match up. So the team established a new supergroup. Now, the goal of the whole classification system is to create clusters of species and see if they are derived from a common ancestor, and then see what that common ancestor might have been like. Scientists believe that all organisms within each of those half a dozen supergroups have evolved from a single eukaryote common ancestor. Scientists are still trying to figure out how that common ancestor looked, and now they're a little closer. The position of this major new group um, will be likely very important in determining where the root of the tree of eukaryotes goes. This is where the deepest split into two happens in the tree. And having one more distinct uh, branch in the tree of eukaryotes that we did not know about will presumably help 
more accurately reconstruct the history of eukaryotic cells. And that's a big step. Learning this microbial history isn't going to happen overnight, but it helps lay the groundwork for ecologists, protistologists, and other biologists to understand more about our evolutionary history. Now, I know this story is kind of dense, and it took a lot of visits back to biology class, so why is this one of my favorite stories of 2018? Well, this story shows us that there's a lot still unknown on Earth. We're looking for life on other planets, and here we are still discovering more life on our home planet. And we're getting closer to answering a fundamental question about our existence. Where did we come from? Well, at least microbially speaking. For those of you who don't know, Undark is not just a podcast, but a full online magazine. So our podcast producer, Lydia Chain, caught up several of the magazine editors to learn what their favorite stories of the year are. Lydia, take it away. Thanks so much, Kasha. All right, so first up is Brooke Burrell, a senior editor at Undark. Brooke, what story stuck out for you this year? Uh, So I have two stories for you today that I really loved this year for different reasons. Uh, The first one is this piece called Paper Trails, Living and Dying with Fragmented Medical Records, which was by... Uh, a great writer, Alana Yerkowitz. Patients' care is getting affected because some really important medical instructions aren't necessarily making it from one place to another. And I thought she did a really great job on making that story accessible uh, and incredibly readable. Yeah, that was a great piece. And in fact, we actually invited her on to this podcast a few episodes back so listeners could get just a little bit more detail about her experience. And I mean, just for me personally, it really made me look at how I'm storing all my medical information because I, I just I don't think I can trust the system to keep track of it for me. Yeah. So you said you had a second story, too. Um, yeah, the second story uh, just came out a couple weeks ago, and it was by this writer, Joelle Renstrom. It was uh, originally we assigned her to go to this conference talking about sex robots and like the latest technology that is exploring things like the moral psychology of sex with robots and stuff like that. Uh, But not long before she was supposed to go, they actually canceled the conference really suddenly because a sister conference that was going to be running at the same time, they had invited Steve Bannon. And there was a big uproar about this and a big sort of controversy. So they canceled both of these conferences. So Joelle had to pivot and we had her just do a reported piece specifically on the cancellation and what that means. We can't get away from these political stories. Even when you think you're doing a story about sex robots, suddenly it's weirdly about Steve Bannon. And uh, it did not turn out as expected, but it was still a great story. Thank you so much for your time, Brooke. Yeah, great. Thanks. Next up, we have Ashley Smart, the opinion editor for Undark. Did you have a favorite piece in your column this year? So one piece I really liked uh, was an op-ed by Jessica Heckman called Pet Genetic Testing Companies Are Making Promises They Can't Keep. Great headline. She's making the case, if you can imagine it, (laughs) that these pet genetic testing companies are completely unregulated, even less regulated than the human genetic testing companies. So basically, they have free reign to make all these these claims about what their tests can show, and no one is no one is checking them on it. Okay, but say the testing company tells me that my mud is part lab, and really she's part terrier or part Ridgeback. That doesn't seem like such a big problem. What what's the actual harm being done here? So the the problem is that 
in addition to purporting to be able to tell pet owners about the quote-unquote ancestry of their pets, many of these companies make claims that the that the genetic test will also be able to predict health outcomes for the pets. So Jessica actually writes about this case where uh, pet owners actually euthanized uh, their their dog, their pug, because it tests uh, positive for a genetic marker for a fatal neurodegenerative disease. And as it turns out, the the genetic marker isn't wasn't a death sentence. So so basically, it only meant that one in 100 dogs would actually get this disease. You know, a lot of the claims that these pet genetic test companies are making really, really just aren't based on sound science. So maybe not the best Christmas present to give your dog. Maybe, maybe not a genetic test. Maybe, maybe a chew toy is the way to go this Christmas. Thanks so much for coming on. No problem, Lydia. Thanks for having me. Next up, Sarah Talpas, another Undark senior editor. Sarah, what story do you think that we should all be thinking about as we end this year? So the story that I am interested in is called How Indirect Violence Gets Under a Child's Skin and Into the Brain. It's by Rod McCullum. It takes as its starting point a study that was conducted eight years ago. And that study found that a killing in a child's neighborhood could significantly lower that child's standardized test um, scores. And this is even if the child didn't witness the killing or know the victim. And he suggested that stress caused by proximity to violence could explain about half of the achievement gap between black and white students. Um, The article reports on a new study that opens a door for thinking about why this is happening. It was conducted by a team of researchers who asked kids to wear watches that measured their sleep patterns. Um, And the kids also gave spit samples three times a day so that they could measure their cortisol levels. And what the researchers found was that both of those measures were affected on the day following a violent crime in the child's neighborhood. The article also quotes a developmental psychologist saying that subtle differences in feelings of safety can have real implications for sleep, which in turn can affect cognition, attention, and performance during the day. So for me, I think this is an important article because trauma and violence are public health issues, but they're not often discussed that way in the media. And so I think Um, If we know what's contributing to educational or health disparities, um, then perhaps we can figure out how to intervene early and maybe buffer some of the effects on these children. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing it with us on the podcast today. Sure. Thanks for asking. Now, for a slightly different perspective is Anar Badalov, who is Undark's communications manager and promotions editor. He is the one that makes sure all of our stories get in front of people. And I'm so curious, Anar, so many of Undark's pieces make an impact, but is there one in particular that stood out in how it landed and reached the right people? There's one story from the year that really stands out to me, because one, it's just a memorable piece, and two, because it began to have an impact from the moment it was published. And that's Karen Savage's piece on food-grade hydrogen peroxide. 
So usually when I think of hydrogen peroxide, I think of what my mom used to pour into like a scraped knee in order to clean it. But in this story, people are drinking it in the hope and in the belief it will cure diseases as serious as cancer. I mean, it's heartbreaking. How was this piece received? So the story got some attention from the start. It was featured at Longform, which is one of my favorite sites. It got shared a bunch on social media, but I'd say it didn't really take off in a huge way. Then a week after it went live, looking at our analytics, something really stood out to me. The story had been consistently seeing hundreds of clicks each day from Google searches. What's more, the average time readers spent on the article was seven minutes, which these days is an insanely long time to spend on a page. Checked again this past week, and that's still the case. It's now been read over 50,000 times and continues to see hundreds of reads each day. So now when someone is uh, doing a Google search for 35% hydrogen peroxide because they heard about it on some alternative treatment forum, they won't just see testimonials and ads pointing them to websites where they can buy this stuff by the gallon. And they'll see at the very top of the results Karen's story. Maybe it'll give them pause, or maybe at least it'll give them some comfort. That's incredible. It makes me feel so good to know that among all of the other advertisements for things that are unscientific, that people are being exposed to our material as well. Thank you so much, Anar. Sure. Take care. Have fun out there. Finally, we have Tom Zeller, the editor-in-chief of Undark Magazine. Tom, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Lydia. So as we're closing out this year, what should we be thinking back on and really remembering? Um, well, everything that Undark does is great. I should say that at the outset. Um, but I'm but I'm also biased. So, uh, from my point of view, um, the thing that that I I'm proudest of that that Undark has done, and that I that I hope uh, listeners of the podcast, if they haven't already seen it, uh, will will go and check out, is our breathtaking series of stories. Uh, we've been publishing them across the year, and it's it's a really deep dive and on-the-ground look at air pollution around the world. Seven different places around the globe at uh, uh, varying levels of economic development um, and uh, places that are struggling with different sorts of air pollution. And and really kind of get down on the ground and examine what is the what is the issue and what does this do to people's lives. I have to think, I think the latest data shows that roughly 4 million um, people die uh, uh, as a result of air pollution every year. Um, and if you include household pollutants, that's outdoor pollution, but if you include household, uh, like from cook stoves in, in large parts of the developing world, that, that's almost 7 million uh, lives affected every year. So... Um, for me, that was really sort of one of the most important things that we did this year uh, and that I'm proudest of. Yeah. Another thing to think about with this project that I found really compelling, maybe because I'm interested in multimedia, is that it had so many intricate multimedia dimensions to it, from drone videography to 360 video to interactive data visualizations. Can you speak a little bit about why you thought that was important to include in a piece like this? Yeah, sure. I mean, from the very beginning, this was to be a very visual, uh, a visual project. In part because we were we were teaming up with Larry Price, a two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer. It was his work that that sort of prompted us to 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 get on the ground, and we really wanted him to to capture this this issue visually. In part because visuals are a much more universal 
language. Um, and we also included um, a couple of, uh, of really ambitious interactive data visualizations that were produced by Talia Bronstein, who's, who's a, a fellow here at, uh, at MIT this year and a former Stat News staffer who's really, really great with taking data and turning it into something that you can kind of put your hands on and explore and, and move around. And, and I, I think that that just was a no-brainer. I mean, this is, this is about data, right? And it's about how that data ends up um, uh, how that data ends up affecting our, our lives, how we live and breathe. And so unless you can see it and really kind of move around and watch those, watch those numbers fluctuate and actually go up into the red areas that are um, uh, into ranges that the World Health Organization and other global health officials would consider really, really damaging, um, unless you can see that, I think it remains abstract. So uh, that's 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 really why we wanted to make this a visual presentation. Yeah, and in my opinion, it's a really fantastic and successful one. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, and I am so excited to see what's in store for Undark next year. Yes, me too, and thanks for uh, thanks for giving us the opportunity to kind of do this look back. It's it's really great. Those are all such great stories. If you have a favorite story, tweet at UndarkMag and let us know. We would love to hear from you. Next up, we're going to talk to the science advisor to President Obama, John Holdren. Here's a fun bit of history. I was actually asked to do stand-up comedy at a March for Science rally, and guess who I had to follow? Yep, John Holdren opened up for me. Not many comedians can say that. Interviewing John Holdren is Seth Manugan. Seth is a journalist, author, and director of MIT's graduate program in science writing. Let's take a listen. Uh, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome to the Undark podcast this month, Dr. John Holdren. Uh, Dr. Holdren has had a long and illustrious career um, in both science and science policy. Uh, for eight years under President Barack Obama, um, he was the chief science and technology advisor, um, and he also was the director of the White House's Office of Science and Technology Policy, uh, and was in fact the longest serving director of the OSTP in its history. Um, previously under President Clinton, he had served for two terms uh, on PCAST, the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. Um, he is currently a professor of environmental science and policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and Harvard's Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences. Um, and those are positions that he held before he joined the Obama administration and now has returned to Harvard and is also currently serving as senior advisor to the president of the Woods Hole Research Center, um, one of the uh, largest and best regarded environmental think tanks in the world. Uh, Dr. Holdren, welcome to Undark. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Um, so I wanted to start out by by asking you one thing that's very striking about your career is that you were involved in policy um, and interested in science policy from from pretty early on. Can you talk about how you entered into that realm of of science science and scientific research? Well, I was interested in the interaction of science and technology with 
the great challenges of the human condition, uh, literally from the time I was in high school. And I had uh, always hoped from that time to be able to shape a career in which I could work in science and technology and in the connections of science and technology to these questions of uh, population, resources, environment, development, international security. Uh, and I was very fortunate in being able to do that. And I managed to hang on to academic positions uh, in part because I was fortunate to get positions in which engaging with policy was part of the mandate. So it didn't uh, it didn't do my career any harm that I was engaged uh, in these policy issues. Uh, it is true for people whose primary career is in laboratory science or theoretical science uh, in one or the other of the scientific disciplines that to the extent that they engage in uh, interactions with policy, that does come out of their research time. It does come out of the time that they can devote uh, to their science. Uh, my view, though, is uh, that that is very worthwhile. After all, so many of the problems that society faces today, whether uh, we're talking about the United States or we're talking about global society, so many of those problems, whether they be energy, climate change, biomedicine and public health, national and international security, protection of the oceans, all of those challenges are challenges where science and technology play important roles. And if the people who know the most about science and technology are silent in the policy discussions because they are worried about uh, taking away from their science careers, then the most knowledgeable voices about those important science and technology dimensions of public challenges uh, will not be heard. Uh, and that would be uh, a tragedy. Right, right. Um, there, there are a bunch of things there that I, I want to come back to, actually. Uh, but first, I wanted to go back to um, your time in the in the Clinton administration when you were uh, a part of the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. Um, and one thing, looking back at that period uh, and then looking at today, one thing that is an outside observer that seems very striking to me is the way over the past several decades that science has become politicized, um, whereas in the 1990s, there might have been different ideas about uh, how to approach it, but there was not as much of a partisan divide around climate change. Um, there was a general consensus that science was the most effective tool we have for for understanding the world. Um, so I guess my first question is, is, is my impression as an outside observer, does that track with your experience as, as someone working in Washington? Well, I, I think the uh, matter of the politicization of science is actually a little bit complicated. Uh, there has long been bipartisan support for the federal government's investments in basic research, in fundamental research, uh, and to some extent early-stage applied research, because there has been an understanding on both sides of the aisle that the private sector is never going to invest as much in fundamental research as the interests of society as a whole would dictate. And the reason is the uncertainties are too great, the risks are too high, the timescale for potential returns is too long, and so we have uh, benefited 
uh, in this country and indeed much of the world from a symbiosis of sorts between what governments fund and what the private sector then does. Uh, and that symbiosis has pretty much been understood by both sides of the aisle in the United States Congress for quite a long time. What got really politicized uh, starting in the 90s uh, was uh, climate science in particular, uh, energy research and development in particular. Uh, and those got politicized in part because of a Republican concern that if the public ever embraced what climate scientists were telling us, they would also embrace a regulatory regime which Republicans wouldn't like. Uh, but if you look at uh, biomedical research, for example, the biomedical domain has enjoyed continued bipartisan support, uh, not least, I think, because uh, members of Congress understand that the National Institutes of Health are working to cure the afflictions that affect members of Congress and right. their families, right. not to put too fine a point on it. Right. And so even when President Trump proposed a 20% cut in the budget of the National Institutes of Health in his first budget presented to the Congress, the Congress just rejected that and they gave the NIH an increase instead. So it's a complicated picture. Uh, it remains the case that it is a pretty easy sell, relatively speaking, in Congress uh, to get support for fundamental science, uh, and again, uh, a real easy sell to get support for biomedical science, uh, and a harder sell to get support for climate science, for Earth observations, for clean energy technology, and particularly it's a hard sell to get support for international cooperation in science and technology. Uh, that has become even more difficult uh, in the Trump administration than it was before uh, because of President uh, Trump's stance that the uh, United States uh, should be great all on its own uh, and a lack of appreciation on President Trump's part and many of the people he's appointed uh, about the enormous value that comes from international collaboration. And... and um Actually, I, I want to talk about the ways that Trump has changed uh, some of the long-held norms around science and, and scientific research. But before we get into that, um, uh, just briefly, your role under under President Obama in, in leading um, the OSTP, can you describe that role a little bit? Sure. First of all, uh, there are really uh, two positions that have historically been held by the same person in the White House. One is director of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, and the other position is assistant to the president for science and technology. The second position is the one that's ordinarily simply described as the president's science advisor. And if one has the rank in the White House of assistant to the president, then you're one of the relatively few people who can make an appointment with the president, who uh, basically has access to the policy discussions in the White House at the highest level, including with the president, and you have a coordinating role. And the president's science advisor, the assistant to the president for science and technology, was a full partner with the director of the Office of Management and Budget in recommending to the president, finally, what he should accept 
in the proposals from the departments and agencies for their budgets. Enormously uh, powerful and influential role. The uh, Office of Science and Technology Policy basically has three functions. One is policy for science and technology. That includes the budgets uh, and more. Uh, And that itself would be uh, a full-time job quite quite easily. Uh, But in addition, the other side of the coin is science and technology for policy. And what that means is ensuring that the president and the president's other senior advisors have the insights from science and technology that bear on whatever policy issues are on their plate. Uh, That's very important. The third function, uh, besides policy for science and technology and science and technology for policy, is serving as the president's emissary, if you will, to the wider science and technology community. And and when you were uh, in those roles, uh, you were covering a huge swath of issues, uh, um, including obviously climate change, but cybersecurity, um, nanotech and, and biotech, issues of antibiotic resistance, um, looking at the roles that science and technology can play in economic recovery. Um, and, and then, as is now very well known, uh, um, the office, uh, the OSTP, went from having a staff of around 135 uh, at its peak under you to roughly 30 when when Trump uh, was inaugurated. Um, it took him 18 months to nominate a replacement. Um, that replacement still has not been confirmed. Uh, those are the facts of the situation. What are the risks of this type of approach uh, of President Trump towards science broadly and towards that office specifically? Uh, The perils start with missing opportunities where insights from science and technology could make more effective the government's actions to address the public's interests, whether it's in relation to the economy or health or national security or conservation, resource management, environmental quality, and so on. you can see the perils of an absence of science and technology advice at high levels when you look at the first couple of budgets that President Trump proposed. And the uh, appalling characteristics of those budgets in the proposals to drastically cut uh, science and technology of enormous importance to the public interest, uh, it was uh, very evident that the science and technology advice that was needed uh, was missing. Uh, Since that time, there has been uh, some buildup in the staff of the Office of Science and Technology Policy, and they've been doing, I think, some useful work on cybersecurity, on artificial intelligence, on drones. Uh, And I think one can hope that if the president's nominee, Kelvin Drogemeyer, uh, who was a very solid scientist, an atmospheric scientist, Uh, I think if he gets confirmed that he will further uh, ramp up both the staff uh, and the agenda at OSTP. It's unfortunate that uh, he's having such a late start. Um, But there is no evidence that whoever the OSTP director might be, Trump himself will be listening. Uh, We just have no indication that President Trump is interested in facts, insights, analysis uh, from the domain of science. 
President Trump, as we all know, announced the United States' intention to withdraw from the Paris Agreement uh, on uh, a global approach to addressing the challenge of climate change. So uh, there's a great disconnect between President Trump's position and the position of the knowledgeable community, not just scientists and technologists, but business people who know that we should be continuing to lead in the global approach to addressing climate change in sensible ways rather than retreating. It is so much easier to rip something apart than to build something up. Um, and, and so what do you think are the lasting impacts, even if Trump is a one-term president, um, the lasting impacts both on, uh, both on these different agencies, but, but also what, are, what, what type of lasting damage could a Trump administration do um, environmentally uh, um, in terms of dealing with issues like antibiotic resistance or cybersecurity, um, even uh, nuclear arms treaties? Uh, what might we be looking at um, a couple of years down the line? Well, I would say, first of all, uh, the last point that you mentioned, nuclear arms treaties, uh, is uh, one of the most prominent examples of the real harm that uh, Trump can do. Uh, stepping away from uh, agreements reached after years of painstaking negotiation that reduce the dangers of nuclear war is a terrible mistake. These are big dangers, and they cannot easily be reversed, even if Trump is only a one-term president, which I think is an outcome devoutly to be wished, uh, because the fact is that reaching these agreements in the first place took a tremendous amount of dedicated effort by negotiators uh, on the various sides involved. Uh, another big uh, source of damage that uh, President Trump's policies uh, have caused is uh, reductions in the access of bright students uh, and postdoctoral students uh, from abroad coming to the United States. The numbers of applications uh, of foreign students to U.S. universities have been declining. The number of uh, postdoctoral fellows coming to U.S. universities has been declining. Uh, we have benefited for decades by having basically an open door to talented people from other countries who want to come here and study, who want to come here and work in science and technology. And uh, the Trump administration has already uh, badly damaged that flow. And in the process, they are threatening U.S. global leadership in the science and technology domain. And by the way, there are others who would be delighted to assume that mantle of global leadership in this domain, above all, China. The uh, other domain of uh, lasting damage is in the climate change domain. Delays in addressing climate change can basically never be recouped. We have lost the time permanently that we needed to address climate change before it reached levels that approach unmanageable. Uh, every day that we lose, every month, every year, every decade in uh, advancing the deployment of clean and efficient energy technologies in building a more climate-resilient uh, infrastructure, uh, those losses of time uh, are permanent. If we lose uh, four years, 
to Trump, uh, that's four years we don't get back. We're that much further down the road toward climate disaster. Uh, and I have to hope that we won't lose eight years uh, to Trump's intransigence on this uh, really most important of global challenges in the 21st century. And so my next question is is almost an existential question. Um, uh, I'm not involved in science policy uh, um, on any level um, or in, in directly in scientific research. Uh, and there are days when I wake up and I find what's happening under the Trump administration um, and the changes that, that are occurring to be almost too overwhelming to, uh, to, to even think through. Um, as someone who is so involved uh, with these issues and who knows so intimately both the benefits and the damage that can come out of effective and ineffective policy, um, what do you do to, to sort of gird up for the fight each day to, to continue marching forward? Well, certainly it's been very painful uh, for me to watch uh, President Trump and his minions try to dismantle practically everything that we were able to accomplish uh, in the Obama administration in the domains of uh, clean and efficient energy, uh, climate change uh, mitigation and adaptation, protection of the oceans, protection of the Arctic, uh, respect for insights from science and technology and their value in addressing all of the challenges on the national agenda. That's been very painful. The way I live with it is spending a substantial fraction of my time pushing back in every way that I can, giving speeches, giving interviews, writing op-ed pieces, uh, and uh, working with members of Congress, uh, which is really, I think, where the leverage is today. Uh, I don't think anybody, least of all me, is going to persuade President Trump to change his views or his stance on many of these issues. But there are many people in the Congress who are much uh, more ready to listen. Uh, we're going to have a new set of leaders uh, in the House of Representatives uh, with whom I and many other scientists and technologists have already been meeting about the things that the House can do to push back against some of these uh, extremely damaging policies of the Trump administration. I, I want to end talking about your your fellow scientists. In, in a talk, you really gave a plea um, to the scientific community to, to get more involved, to become more broadly informed about science and scientific issues, um, and also to give a, a, a certain amount of time, 10% of your time, um, to public service, not just in terms of serving on government committees or, or testifying before Congress, but also to activism. Have you seen more scientists getting involved in that way? There has been uh, a really powerful emerging movement of more and more scientists and technologists uh, becoming engaged in public education, in policymaker education, in uh, advocacy of sensible policy positions on issues where science and technology directly impact the economy, directly impact public health, directly impact uh, national security, uh, and, and so on. Uh, that has been very encouraging to me. I actually proposed in my presidential address 
for the American Association for the Advancement of Science in 2007, that 10% figure as a target that all scientists and technologists would tithe 10% of their efforts to public education, to policymaker education, to advocacy for sensible policies where science and technology meet the public interest. Uh, Others have advocated that over the years, and we are really seeing the results now. Uh, I would mention that in addition to the increased engagement uh, of scientists and engineers in public policy issues, uh, we have seen the emergence since President Trump announced the U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Agreement of something called America's Pledge. The motto of America's Pledge is we're still in. We're still in the Paris Agreement. We're still in our commitments to Uh, reduce U.S. emissions of carbon dioxide and other heat-trapping gases. And that America's Pledge now has in it 22 states, nearly 500 cities, many hundreds of corporations, many hundreds of universities, civil society organizations, all pledging that they're still in, that they are going to do everything they can to see that the United States meets the commitments that President Obama made uh, in Paris. That is very encouraging. People really are becoming more active. They're becoming more engaged. We've got a lot to do, but we have a lot of people who are prepared to rise to the challenge of doing it, uh, even if their leadership in the White House has abdicated its responsibility in those domains. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Holdren, for joining us on this month's Undark podcast. It was a real pleasure speaking with you, and we hope that we can have you back again in the future. Well, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. John Holdren, who was President Obama's chief science advisor uh, and the head of the Office of Science and Technology Policy. Uh, He currently is a professor of environmental science and policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and in the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences and a senior advisor to the president of the Woods Hole Research Center. Okay, on Dark Listeners, that is all for 2018. We're produced by Lydia Chain, music is by the Undark team, and I'm your host, Kasha Patel. Happy holidays and talk to you soon.